0: In the book of John this morning, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, John, John's Gospel, chapter number 20. And once you find 20, why then go back to chapter 2. We're going to read from both places, chapter 2 and chapter 20. We'll start in chapter 20, however. will not you stand with me as we read God's Word together, please? In chapter 20 and verse number 30, And many other signs, note the word sign there, sign having the idea of a miracle. Many signs or miracles truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. They're never recorded in Scripture. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Go over to chapter 21 and verse 25. And there are also many other things which Je- Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Many other signs and wonders and things that Jesus did, too numerous to account that all the books couldn't contain them. They were so wonderful. Now, go back with me to chapter 2, and we're going to look at the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed. Jesus' first miracle, John 2, verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. His mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. That would be about 18 or 20 gallons in each of these six uh, water pots. And they were used to wash their hands and to uh, do the ceremonial washings that the Jews did before they worshiped God. Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bare it or took it to him. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to him, every man at the beginning sets forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Thank you. You may be seated. Can you all give me just a touch more, just a touch, please, if you will? Question, do you believe in miracles today? In the 21st century, do you really believe that God intervenes in the affairs of people and things, and do you believe in miracles? Well, John's book uses miracles as the heart of what he's trying to communicate to us. He uses words like this, signs or miracles, wonders, mighty works, mighty signs and wonders, and he puts them all together. But all throughout... He's making a statement. He is communicating a message to us. So what is a miracle? Let's really define it because it's kind of subjective in people's minds. A miracle is a divine intervention when Almighty God intervenes in the events of earth in something or someone, and in His intervention, he takes the basic laws of science or nature, whatever you, however you may wish to refer to them, and he overrides or suspends those laws. He overrides the laws of nature or he suspends them temporarily so that he can work in a way that is extraordinary that normally people don't see. That's a miracle, a divine intervention in the events of earth that requires the basic laws of nature to be suspended or to be overridden. Now, in John chapter 20 and verse 31, you see the purpose of miracles. The purpose of miracles is not to astonish people. The purpose of miracles that Jesus worked was not to entertain people or to amaze them and they say, wow, Did you? can you believe that? That was not Jesus' purpose at all. His purpose was to communicate a message, to explain to people something in the normal, natural realm by using something in the supernatural realm. Each of the miracles of the book of John had a specific message that the Lord was communicating through that miracle. And beyond that, every miracle that Jesus performed, he was attempting to show that he is the answer to every problem, every problem and every type of problem. Jesus is the answer to problems, and miracles were the proof and the evidence of that. Now, I want you to think with me a little bit this morning, just for a moment or two, then you don't have to think as much as heavy, okay? But I want you to think with me about this. I believe that man, mankind, men and women, us, I believe God has so constituted us, the way our minds work, that we cannot believe that a religion is supernatural. We can't believe that our faith is of a divine origin unless it's accompanied by miracles. I don't believe it's possible to worship God if it were not for a belief that we have that he can do supernatural events. Let me explain what I mean by that. If there is an infinite being, a God, a deity that exists, then he must act in a supernatural or a superhuman way. If there is a God, he has to have the power to override his own creation, his own natural laws if he is bound and in bondage to the natural laws of the world just like you and I are, then he has no more power, he has no more ability than we do. So if there is a God, and there is, he must act in a supernatural way. What I mean by that is is this, for example, if we see an animal, a dog, a cat, or a squirrel or something, we expect that animal to act in a Subhuman way. We expect that animal to act on an animal level, don't we? We don't expect of them what a human being could do. And then when we see a human being, we expect them to act on a human level. Although there's a lot of people in our society today acting on an animal level, I'll have to say that. But we expect humans to act on a human level, animals to act on a below-human level. And if there's a God… We expect Him to act on a superhuman level, above our abilities. And if He couldn't do that, then why would we trust Him and have faith in Him? And So we say God can do anything, and He can act in the most extraordinary ways. He can perform an intervention in the affairs of human beings, even of the earth itself and the physical realm like opening up the Red Sea for them to walk over in the Exodus. God is a God of miracles. Jesus Christ, it said, worked so many miracles that all the books of the world couldn't contain them if they were to be written down. That was John's explanation of that. And I believe it's impossible to convince people that a religion is from God unless it's accompanied by signs and miracles. Miracles that require divine power. You see, miracles give credentials, another way of saying it. It gives credentials to the person who's performing the miracles. If I could stand here and honestly heal sick people, if I could go to McLeod Hospital or Carolina's Hospital and walk through there and lay my hands on people and pray for them, they'd get up out of their beds and they would be medically, certifiably cured, why, you would, you would say, He's unlike anybody I've ever seen. I know I can't do that. I act on a human level. I can't act on a superhuman level. I'm a man. Now, imposters know this, and so imposters make these false claims all the time. You remember Jim Jones? He was the guy that took a bunch of people, a thousand people down to Guyana, and he killed them all. But he traveled the country years before that, and he was a supposed divine healer. He came to Lake City, South Carolina, and had a, a meeting, by the way, in a tent down there many years ago. And he conned a bunch of people down there too. And Jim Jones was caught red-handed. I've seen the pictures of them. He would lay his hands on people, pray over them, people who had come forward in his meeting and said, you, they have cancer. I have tumors growing in my body. He would palm up his sleeve a chicken liver. He would pray for those people and then produce a chicken liver and tell them this was the tumor that he delivered them from. Diabolical evil. But an imposter understands that if he can prove that he has divine power, then people are going to have confidence in him. John the Baptist didn't try to prove that, and so it says in the Bible, John did no miracle. He never claimed to be Jesus Christ. John claimed to be the forerunner. He must increase, but I must decrease, you see. So miracles give credentials to the person who makes divine claims. So Jesus Christ is born, lives for 33 years, and bursts upon the world. The world seen there in Israel, and uh, people didn't know who he was. In their minds, he was the son of Joseph and Mary brought up in a little backwater town of Nazareth up there in the hills with the hillbillies and the Appalachia of uh, Israel at that time. And so how's he going to prove to the world that he is the Son of God? How would you do it? Well, there's no other way but one. You've got to show supernatural power. And so he began doing miracles. And we turn our attention to the very first one of these, and Jesus, of course, I believe, performed thousands and tens of thousands of miracles. I think that every day he was walking by, he never turned anybody down. Every single request that was within his will, he performed the miracle and he brought that to be. How many people did he heal? Tens of thousands, probably. How many did he raise from the dead? Probably more than are recorded in the Bible. How many other miracles like feeding the 5,000 did he do that are not recorded? We have no idea. John just simply says he did so many of them, but I've just written down a few of them to, to make my point so you can see that Jesus was, in fact, God's son. The Bible only records, in fact, about 35 different miracles of Jesus Christ. And in the book of John, John only has seven of them. Luke has more of them, far more. Luke is the one who had most of the miracles. John only recorded seven. But the seven that he picked out, he picked them out for a reason, to specifically deliver a message that Jesus Christ was the Son of the living God. And so Jesus began performing these miracles to show people He was God, and it worked. Go back to chapter 3, if you will. And in verse number 2, Nicodemus is talking to Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles, these signs that you're doing, except God be with you. See, Nicodemus was convinced by the miracles that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. In John chapter 2 and verse 11, there, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and his disciples believed on him. He convinced people that he was the Son of God through miracles. And so, miracles are essential, vital, critical to our Christian faith. Now, somebody says to me, Well, doesn't Satan perform miracles? Uh, you look back there in the book of Exodus, and, and uh, Moses threw down his rod and turned it, and God turned it into a snake. And then the magicians there, they threw down their rods and they were turned into snakes. Did, does Satan have the power to override the laws of nature? Answer, no. Does Satan have power to suspend the laws of nature? Again, the answer, no. Satan doesn't have that power, never has, never will. He is not God. He's not even close to God. He's a created being himself. And in the book of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 9, you will see that the Bible says that Satan's miracles are all fakes. They're like Jim Jones's miracle, a fake. Satan's miracles are Second Thessalonians 2 and 9 says they are lying signs and wonders, lying signs and wonders. They're a sleight of hand. They're tricks. How did he do it? I don't know. He's pretty smart, isn't he? And his abilities are beyond mine, but he, he doesn't have the power to do a miracle in the true sense that we're talking about with the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus performed thousands of miracles during his ministry, now here in this one in chapter two, verse uh, these first verses of chapter two in the book of John, the setting is a wedding. Now a Jewish wedding wasn't like ours, where people come for two or three hours and they leave. A Jewish wedding lasted anywhere from about three or four to up to seven days. It was a long, drawn-out affair. You went there and you stayed, or you would have been an insult to the family that invited you. And so the wedding lasted for a long time, and the host family, the family of the bridegroom, it was different from us. The bridegroom's family provided all the food and all the beverage for the people. No matter how long they stayed, they took responsibility and it, they bore the expense of the whole thing. And it would be a great, great embarrassment for a family, a humiliation to the point of almost a a social disgrace for them to bring people there and then run out of wine. Well, so they had a problem. They ran out of the wine. Now, problems, you can look at them two ways, but one way we ought to look at them is not being a negative, but oftentimes problems are a platform on which God performs a miracle or he does a work. Even in our lives, our problems are platforms on which God works. How the, the, the old song by Andre Crouch says it so beautifully. I'd never, I, uh, if I never had a problem, I'd never know that God could solve them. If I never had a problem, I would never know that God could solve them. Problems are the platform on which Almighty God works in our lives. Do you have a problem this morning? There's a potential way that God can use that problem and really touch other people, maybe multitudes of people through your problem if you handle it right. Now, if we don't handle it right, then our problems can be very, very, very negative. But if we handle our problems in the correct way, They become a platform for God to demonstrate His grace, His mercy. So don't buckle every time you have a problem because you're bringing disrepute, in fact, to the name of the Lord. So they ran out of wine. Wine in the Bible is a a picture of joy. Always in the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. Now I'm talking about wine, and we, we, we teach total abstinence here. We don't apologize for it. But I hear people run to this and try to make Jesus into a bartender. I want to tell you, Jesus was not a bartender, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, the wine in the Bible was not the stuff you buy at the grocery store or at uh, the liquor store. It was not the same. The wine of the Bible, first of all, they didn't use modern fermentation methods that run the alcoholic content up. And the, water was dilu- and the wine was diluted with water in the Bible, and here's why. And it's a very logical thing if you'll go back and study the historical context. You see, they had no water purification in those days. You pulled your water up out of a well. It might be full of you don't know what in those days. And so they poured wine with a low alcoholic content in it to kill the bugs and the germs in it. And uh, you couldn't drink enough to get drunk on hardly. You may have been able to, because people did get dr- drunk. But in the Bible, the stuff that would make you drunk was called strong drink. The Bible even separates strong drink was the stuff you can get how on, and the normal wine of the Bible was they do they would dilute it with water. And it was, they drank it for every meal. They drank it all the time. It had very low alcoholic content. In Acts chapter 2, in fact, it says, Peter said, these people are not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, why did he say that? Because what he was saying is, you folks know you can't drink enough by 9 o'clock in the morning. Get drunk. Pretty logical when you begin to, to, to roll it all out and study it there. And so they had a problem. They would run out of the beverage. They would run out of the wine. But please don't make Jesus into a bartender. Went over in the book of Habakkuk. He says there's a curse on the man who puts booze to somebody else's lips. Makes him drunk. Remember that. Bill didn't say that. Amen. Some of y'all smile at me a little bit. I know I'm, I'm, I'm rubbing your fur the wrong way, but I'm, I'm doing it with a Bible. So you take it however you want. Huh? The smile won't break your face. Even if you were sipping last night, it still won't hurt you. Smile at me. I'm not your enemy. Come on, don't take it so personally. Don't make Jesus a bartender. And then Mary comes up to him in verse 3, and here's what Mary says Won't you do something about this? I've watched you, I know who you are. I know I, you were. I was a virgin when you were, when you were conceived. You're the son of God. You're God's son. Why don't you do something? She had faith in him. She, mother knew, didn't she? And notice what he says to her. It's so strange here. He said to her, "My hour is not yet come." When he talks about my hour, he's always talking about the cross. Here's here's what he's saying. If I perform this miracle and help them with their problem right now, everybody's going to know that I'm God. And once they know that, the march to the cross has begun. And so I need to know for sure, I'm going to be talking to my father. I'm checking on my timing here, right? And so... Jesus said, if I do a miracle, they're going to know who I am. And then they're going to turn against me. There's six empty water pots here. They contain about 18, 20 gallons each. They're used in the ceremonies of their religion. They're ceremonial water pots. And that would be a total of about 120 gallons or so there. And they're a symbol of their religion. These are used in their religious practices. So what you have here is a symbol of empty religion. The water pots are empty. Empty religion. Oh, we got it today. They had it then. Ritualism, ceremonialism, going to church and sitting here so I can check the box, but really not there to know God. Ceremonialism, going through the motions, nominal Christianity where I just go to to appease my conscience, but I don't go because I have any serious intent of becoming a serious follower of Jesus Christ. Ceremonialism, empty religion. Is your your religion empty? Is yours an empty faith, or is it a faith that uh, is live and dynamic and vital to you? And so, Jesus never said, I'm going to turn the water into wine. It just became wine. Through his thought process, he determined to change the water into wine, a supernatural change in the chemical structure of that water, a supernatural change in the chemistry of that water. He turned the water into wine. You heard about the guy, didn't you, driving down 95? And he was weaving all over the road, and a highway patrolman pulled him over. And the highway patrolman had him roll, roll down his window and show him his driver's license. highway patrolman could smell alcohol in his breath. He looked over there, and there's a flask laying on the seat. He says, What have you been drinking? He said, Water. The highway patrolman said, Let me have that flask in a minute. He took it and unscrewed the top. He smelled it. He said, That isn't water, that's wine. The old boy said, Oh my, he's gone and done it again. He's done going and done it again. No, he just did it one time. Now, what's the meaning of the miracle? Jesus turned the water into wine. What's the meaning of that? Here's, the, here's what I want you to write in your Bible Jesus is the answer to disappointment and discouragement. That's what that's about. Jesus is the answer to disappointment and to discouragement. I'm going to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Someday the joy of the world will run out, and you will need the wine, the joy that only Jesus Christ can give in your life. Jesus is the answer to disappointment and discouragement, Someday the joy will run out for you at some point in life, and uh, disappointment will set in, discouragement, heartbreak will set in. And when that happens, I'm telling you today that Jesus is the answer. The joy of empty religion will run out. That's what had happened here. Those religious symbols, those water pots, six of them, the number of a man, They had run out, and there was no wine. There was no joy. I want to ask you a question today. Be honest in your heart. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But how many people here today, if you would be honest with me, you'd say, Pastor, I kind of came to church this morning, but I'm disappointed with life. I'm a little bit discouraged, maybe a lot discouraged. You see, Pastor, life hasn't turned out the way I thought that it would and discouragement, bone-deep disappointment right now is what I feel in my life. I haven't had the success that I thought I'd have in life. I've got health problems, and they prohibit me from doing things I would like to do. Or I have an unhappy marriage, and I've tried to fix it, but haven't been able to fix it so far. I'm discouraged. Friends have forsaken me. People that I loved have turned their back on me. And I'm just so disappointed. An accident has occurred, or some event has changed my whole life forever. I look over this audience, some of you say, My spouse died. I thought one day we would retire and we would just have time for each other and it would be a wonderful existence. And then, Lord, you took her or you took him. And it hadn't turned out at all the way I'd planned for the rest of my life. Maybe some of you facing the loneliness of old age or job insecurity or regret. Well, that's a big one. If only I could go back and do it again. Disappointment, disillusionment. And those people that day, that family, that bride, that groom, those people, those guests, they were disappointed. They had come for this wedding, big, big, big event. They'd traveled for miles to get here. Now, they're out of joy. They're out of joy. The wine has run out. The wine of life has run out. And Jesus in this miracle turned their disappointment and their disillusionment and their discouragement, he turned it all into joy. He provided the joy for their life once again. Now, listen to me carefully, Christian. There is a key to joy. Just like a key that I have in my pocket that'll unlock, these two keys will unlock any door on this property. I put the key in and I turn the key and the door unlocks. And guess what? There's a key to having joy. It's just one word. The key is Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 5 and verse number 32. Now, the key to having the joy is having the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next word? Joy. If I have the Holy Spirit in my life, I'll have the fruit of the Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's joy. But how do I get the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in my life? Well, Acts 5 and 32 says, He gives the Holy Spirit to them that obey Him. It doesn't mean that you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, but it means you're not going to have the fruit of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit in your life. You're not going to have the power of the Spirit, and you're not going to have the joy of the Spirit if you're a disobedient Christian. Why is is the average Christian in America today no happier than the average whirling in America? One word, disobedience. What do I mean? I mean that everything I read in the Bible is for me. It's not for them and them and them. Everything I read in the Bible is for me. And when I'm obedient to it, the more I'm obedient to it, the more the Holy Spirit is in control of my life and working with me. And when I read things in the Bible, or when I come and hear my pastor preach the Word of God, and he's consistent with the Scripture, and i walk out and say, well, somebody else can do that, but I'm not going to, then you know what? You just shot your joy right in the foot, my friend. If you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, you let Jesus come into your heart, but the song doesn't say this part, of, and then you obey everything He told you to do. And the more you obey, the more joy you're going to have. You know that's true. You wouldn't even argue with me about that because what happens Spurgeon said the first thing that happens to a Christian who's disobedient, they lose their joy. And so when I sin, when I have that wrong thought, when I treat somebody wrong, when I raise my voice and tear into somebody or lose my temper or I lie to somebody or I do anything, any time that there's sin in my life or disobedience in my life, you know what? My joy quotient goes down a little bit. The wine goes down of life. And my conscience well, tell me. You need to go and confess that, and if you affected somebody else, you need to go and and talk to them about it. And if you want joy in your life, you have to be obedient. It's just that clear. Acts 5, 32, he gives the Holy Spirit to them that obey him, and the Holy Spirit is the source of the Christian's joy. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Faith and obedience, amen? Most of you have never heard of Tyler Trent. Tyler Trent is a young man who lived in Indiana. I heard an interview by him on ESPN where they named him the number one sports fan in America and they gave him a trophy and had a big piece on ESPN about him. Naturally, they didn't mention anything about his Christian faith. That's what you would expect from a liberal sports network. But he was also a fine Christian. And a magazine article was written about him. A reporter went to his house on December the 21st past 2018. Tyler was stricken with osteosarcoma. When he's 15 years old, it's a bone cancer. It's excruciatingly painful. People scream in pain with it in the end stages. Tyler endured nine major surgeries to try to take out the infected bone. He lost part of one arm, his hip, and much of his pelvis. So he was totally incapacitated. He was a student at Purdue University. He loved football. He was, of course, voted their number one fan. They so loved him that last fall in September, this Purdue coach named Tyler, the co-captain of the football team, even though he was home and bedridden. He had to drop out of school this past year. He's 20 years old. He would have been a senior. He's lying in his room. He's dying. When I watched the video. And uh, it's a room dedicated to sports memorabilia. There are jerseys hanging around autographed by all the big major stars of the NFL and college sports. There are pictures and plaques and autographed helmets, autographed baseball gloves from major leaguers. There's um, Letters framed from President Trump and from Vice President Pence and a lot of congressmen and senators and mayors and celebrities and so on who have heard about Tyler and his problem. And then the interviewer sits down beside the bed, and the interviewer says, Tyler, all this suffering that you've endured as a young man, all your dreams shattered, They tell you that you're terminal. Tyler, where's all this strength come from, this wonderful attitude you have? And I quote from the video. You can barely understand him, but you can understand him. All my strength comes from my faith in Jesus Christ. My favorite verse is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, and he quotes it. Rejoice evermore pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Rejoice evermore. Pray about everything, and in everything give thanks. He said, that's where my strike comes. His father, Tony, comes into the interview when Tyler's cancer returned in 2017 he started praying that God, we started praying that God would use Tyler's journey for his glory we sat down as a family and we read the 103rd psalm together and we determined that no matter what we would honor the lord and then Kelly very attractive young woman young mother she speaks Honoring God with a son that is dying of cancer is not easy. It strains all of our relationships, our activities, and it's straining our livelihood. Doubts assail, loneliness surrounds us. And yet there's a peace because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. At this point in our journey, Kelly says, I can clearly say God has a purpose and a plan for Tyler and for us. And his purpose is far, far greater than our suffering. And then Tony, his dad. You know, we as Americans don't long for Jesus coming. We don't long for heaven because we have everything we need here. Next week will be Christmas. We're going to celebrate the king coming next week. And here in our home, we've learned to long, to sincerely long for heaven and the king. And then Kelly cuts back in, And we cling to God's character. And we rest in his faithfulness. We're thankful regardless of what happens. And we trust our feelings will follow as we exercise our trust. I believe God is going to see us through. Either way, Tyler wins. Either he gets to stay with us a little longer or he gets to see Jesus. Ten days later, January 1, 2019, Tyler got to see Jesus. And Jesus is the answer to disappointment and discouragement and fear. He is the master. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, and bow your heads, please.